Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. set you free. Deny Christ. The old man responded, 86 years have I served him, and he never did me any harm. How then can I blaspheme my faith and my Savior? Again, the proconsul urged him on so that he could save his life. He said to the old man, I have wild beasts at hand, and I will throw you to them unless you repent. The old man showed no fear. He indicated that he was not in the least afraid of wild animals. The proconsul continued to get him to renounce his faith in Christ. No avail. Then the proconsul said to him, if you do not repent, and seeing that you despise the wild beast, I will cause you to be consumed by fire. The old man responded, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of the eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Do what you have to do. Soon afterward, the people began to gather kindling woods for the fire torches, eagerly assisting the proconsul in this way. 
though it was a Sabbath and it happened, many Jews were eager to participate. The 86-year-old man's name was Polycarp. He was a minister during the years of the Book of Revelation and the Jewish church of the church at Smyrna in Jesus' messenger. When John received his vision, it was very well possible that Polycarp was the angel, the minister at that church at that time. Most commentators agree that John wrote towards the end of the first century. Polycarp, as we know from ancient history, was a student of the apostle John. And he will have been in his early 30s when John received his vision on the island of Patmos. This letter of to Smyrna indicates the Christians there had to suffer a lot at the hands of their enemies. That make us, may make us wonder how we die. For these young people in front of us about to come to professional faith to stand up under such circumstances. Would I die for my Lord and Savior at a time like that? Would I have the strength to do that? Well, the Lord God prepares us in that eventuality. And he prepares them to do throughout your whole life. Well, let's face it, brothers and sisters. We do not know either in what way the Lord is going to test us or these young people during their lifetime. Yet we all live during a time which increasingly is hostile to God's word and to those who profess to believe God's word, to us as Christians. And so we ought to make sure that we are ready when that happens. How do we do that? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ says to the church at Smyrna, and therefore also to you and to me, be faithful. Keep to the point of death. I think what this God's word is summarizing and telling us to do which is be faithful keep to the point of death look at Jesus in his present afflictions second test and his final crown the city of Smyrna which still exists today is now known as the city of Ismar located in Turkey was, like Ephesus, located along the Aegean Sea. It competed with Ephesus as the leading city in the province of Asia. Smyrna, however, with half a million inhabitants at that time, was somewhat larger than the city of Ephesus, and therefore had quite a bit of an advantage. The city also had a special relationship with Rome, for Smyrna was one of the very first cities to worship the Roman emperor. For that reason, during the reign of Tiberius, the city won out of five other contending cities the great honor of being allowed to erect a temple to the Roman emperor. The Romans, the city became known as the loyal city or as the faithful city. It was a distinction they were very proud of 
and which they were eager to maintain. They made them very zealous regarding their emperor worship. They made it a requirement that the citizens show their allegiance to the Roman emperor in every way possible. The people had to declare Caesar as Lord in their words and in their actions. And due to a large influx of Jews after the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 after Christ, there were also many Jews in the city of Smyrna. And these Jews were allowed special privileges to practice their religion. They were permitted to come to their synagogues every Saturday without fear or persecution. And they could freely worship in their homes and keep the various laws and ceremonies and the feast days that the Lord God commanded in the Old Testament. And furthermore, they could also partake of the economic activities, being allowed to buy their trades. think they received such privileges? Well, they won those privileges by compromise. For example, they complied with the demand of the rulers of the city to place a statue of the emperor in the hall of their synagogue. These Jews, they wanted to be able to enjoy life to the fullest. They wanted to be able to partake of the economic life of the city, to be able to trade and sell and make a living in every way possible. They wanted to be able to flourish. The only way that they would be able to do that would be to go along as much as necessary with the pagan society within which they lived. But as we see, they were not eager to identify as Christians. For Christians did not come to that place. As a result, of the Jews and therefore did not wish to make any connections with the Christians. Such a connection could easily be made for they also used the Old Testament and many Christians were former Jews. And so the Christians suffered many hardships also at the hands of the Jews. What were those hardships? From Hebrews 10 to 34 we know that on occasion people's property was confiscated, that they were frequently put in prison, and that they were physically molested, at times even thrown to the wild animals in the arena. From antiquity, you also know that Christians were excluded from the guilds, making it virtually impossible for them to make a living. Those guilds were like the unions of the day, except they were much more exclusive and dangerous. It would be very hard for you to become a tent maker or ply any other kind of trade unless you belong to a guild. And belonging to the guild also meant taking part in the various activities that belong to a particular guild. It included pagan worship and all kinds of other heathen practices of which Christians were not allowed to partake. And so they had to do the most menial work it was these Christians in Smyrna were very poor. The Lord Jesus Christ himself mentions their poverty in verse 9. He said, I know your poverty. 
The word that he uses for poverty refers to extreme circumstances. They barely have the necessities of life. Their allegiance to Christ made them the scorn of the world. Their suffering for the sake of Christ was great. But the Lord Jesus says further, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is poverty. He has in mind here those Jews who are physical children of Abraham, but who are spiritual children of Satan. At one time, the Lord Jesus Christ said to the Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And he says to them, oh, you stood condemned because of their extreme hostility towards the Christians. And those Jews did everything in their power to get rid of them. And they found out that someone was a Christian and they would go to the court and that they would accuse them and they would slander them. How could they do such evil things? Well, that is because these Jews thought that they could earn their salvation by keeping the law. As far as they were concerned, those who do not do the law of God, do the scriptures, the word of God, can be damned. But of course they had a completely wrong concept of what the law is all about. It was a work righteousness. And it is because of their work righteousness that these Jews did not have any difficulty compromising either with the Romans and their gods. After all, we are doing God's work, aren't we? It is through your good works that you can earn a place in God's heart. They have a very legalistic approach. And you see the Jews see God as the great accountant in the sky who keeps track of your good works and your evil works. And they thought that they, of all people, did good works. They were better than the rest, and that made them arrogant. Therefore, they took no concept of salvation, because they no longer understood what mercy was really about. And that's how all legalism rationalized their behavior. We want to be good children, don't we? We all have As long as you faithfully attend church and keep the various laws of God, that then you are keeping God's laws. That's dangerous thinking. That's legalistic thinking. You cannot earn yourself a favorable position that way. You cannot earn any credit in the bank of God. We are all sinful and miserable creatures. 
we have nothing to offer God. And you cannot keep the law of God, not even a small part of it. Therefore, you constantly have to humble yourself before God. You have to have hearts of compassion. You know how weak and vulnerable you yourself are. And you only know that if you know the function of the law. Which is what? The law has been fulfilled by Christ. And you keep the law out of thankfulness. Oh, sure, you have to keep it, but you have to realize that you cannot do that on your own. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be grateful. Showing your thankfulness for what Christ has done. And doing your utmost, even though you can't do it, but nevertheless doing your utmost to keep the law. One time, it's recorded in John 5 and 46, the Lord Jesus said to the Jews, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Clearly, Moses, who was keeping the law. That's what it proved to Jesus. Ultimately, when you keep the law, you're grateful to God. And that's what Paul says in, in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 2, verse 28. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one of the outwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. It was those self-righteous Jews who showed no mercy to the Christian because they were so confident in their own goodness and therefore in the evil of others. And so their consciences did not even bother them. And if they do that, the forces of evil will unleash upon the Christian what they can. And so let them quite comfortably share this treatment of the hermit, knowing that this self-deliberately is exactly what we're doing. That we said that it is evil to kill and get worse. But at the same time, he says that he does not want them to fear what they are about to suffer. Why not? Well, so that their faith can be tested in time. That's the second reason. Chapter 2, section 28. Why does the Lord Jesus want their faith to be tested further? What's that good for? Well, look at the kind of faith they already have to suffer. It's horrible. Families were torn apart. They were put at the mercy of the worldly court. They were not allowed to make a living. They were thrown in front of the lions and burned at the stake. You would think that under the circumstances, the Lord God would comfort them with nothing but words of comfort. That he would tell them that it's not all that bad. something much more significant. Listen to the way he starts off his letter to the hermit. He begins these words by stating that, he begins this letter by stating that these words are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life. There is a wonderful and comforting 
In this way, he put their suffering into perspective. For now, what does it mean that he died and came to life again? It means that he is the one who conquered death. He is the firstborn from the dead. In other words, he who writes these words to them is the one through whom alone you will receive life, blessed life, wonderful life, eternal life. He conquered Satan. He withstood everything that Satan could throw at him. He even allowed himself to be forsaken by the garden of Gethsemane. No one ever suffered like Lord Jesus Christ did. No one ever endured the kind of things that he had to endure. We cannot even begin to imagine that that what that will have been like. And there is no greater hell than to be forsaken by God. Christ fully understands what he had to go through. He went through much worse than Saul. He did, for their sakes. For he also introduces himself as the first and the last. That means that all things begin with him and end with him. Everything is in his control. He allowed Satan to do with him what he didn't do. He allowed Satan to do to him what he did to him. But he also allows Satan to know the consequences in our lives. Christ had to suffer for our sake. Our suffering makes no sense. We don't know what's going to happen in our lives or if we can do anything. But whatever trials that come our way, and trials always come our way, we undergo these things for our good. For God promises that whatever evil comes our way, that he will turn it to our benefit. Nothing happens in this life that has no meaning or purpose. God has ultimate, has ordained everything for his glory and for our ultimate benefit. Only a Christian can understand this. Only he can understand the truth of God's rule over all things and that nothing in your life is without purpose, without meaning. For only a Christian knows that everything begins with and ends with Christ. Now, the question still is, what would you do? What would I do if we were in the shoes of those three friends now? Would you or I be able to undergo that kind of persecution? Would you or I be able to withstand that it doesn't come with any word of criticism. The church, this church and the church of Philadelphia are the only two churches of the seven churches who are not being reprimanded for one thing or another. This church is in faith. Those members who were not faithful no longer belong to the church. The church has been kept pure. You see, that's what suffering does. That's what persecution does. That's what hardship does. That's what happens when you have to let go of earthly comforts 
it has you focused on Christ. You can either turn to Christ or you can turn to the devil. For when you are confronted in this way, then you have to let go of everything else in your life. And you can only do that if you are truly committed. You won't be able to let go of these things if you are a member of the church only because of outward appearances. They belong to church. These peanut things, that's really the pattern of that person. And all the other things, if that's your job or your possession, are of equal value or even greater value. One time the Lord Jesus said, when you lose your life, that is when you have gained it. The Lord Jesus must be the most important person in your life. That is the secret the church at Smyrna had learned, and that is the secret that every Christian has to learn. There is nothing more important than that in your life. And so the Lord Jesus Christ exhorts them to be faithful. What exactly does that mean? To be faithful, brothers and sisters, you young people, means to be faithful and to do in the little things what Christians must do. It means to be reliable and pure in the way that you live. It means that you take God's laws very seriously for yourself. You do not want to be cheated, even though there is a good chance you will get away with it. For you know that there is a God in heaven who watches you. He does not want you to be cheated, for example, I can tell you. He doesn't want you to be cheated in any respect. He doesn't want you even to tell a lie, even if the truth is going to hurt you. To be faithful means that you are honest in your dealings with those whom you do business with. It means that you are reliable, that you can be counted on. Faithfulness means to be faithful in every respect to your husband, to your wife. Banish all adulterous thoughts from your head. To be faithful means to be humble. It means to recognize yourself as a great sinner. And that therefore you are also merciful to your neighbors. To be faithful means that you love justice. Not first for yourself, but especially for your brother or sister, or also for your unbelieving neighbor, even if such a stand makes you unpopular. Faithful means to be a person of integrity. Oh yes, it is very difficult to be faithful to that extent. But that is what you have to aim for. The Lord Jesus himself spoke of nothing less. And of course, he was perfect in every way, were he not? Far from it. But through Christ, you always see his perfection. And if you are faithful in your own life in that way, then the Lord will also give you strength when adversity comes your way. For those who are not faithful in the little things will certainly not be faithful in the big things. For them that are going to have to stop their habits of compromise with the world and the desires of their evil flesh will win the day. They will fall away. So you have to small things in your daily life. And so those who are faithful do not have to be afraid 
that have been made, including persecution, the Lord promised that those who have faith in him will receive peace. They will have peace of mind. And he also promises that he will not give you any more to bear than you are able to carry. He tells you that each day has enough worries of his own. Smyrna loved him. They had been rescued from that heathen world. And the Lord has also rescued you and me from that heathen world. And therefore you must stand fast. You must stay in faith. If that's what you strive for throughout your whole life, then no matter what adversity God sends you, you will stand. Even though you may be knocked down, you, will, you won't be you won't be knocked down. That's what God promises. And yet, we too will be like Polycarp and say, all my life I've served you. I cannot deny that now, now that's impossible. You're so much a part of my life. I belong to you. And then he will also give you your reward. That's what the Lord promises. The Lord Jesus says that if you are faithful even to the point of death, that then he will give you the crown of life. The crown that is mentioned here is not the kind of crown that a king or a queen wears. No, it is the kind of crown you receive after you have won a victory. In those days, the winner of an athletic event would receive a wreath of flowers, which the officials would put on their heads. It was the kind of crown that athletes fought over and coveted. It was wonderful to receive such a crown.
but as only to take for those who do not give up and run according to the rules until they share in the victory of the day. That's what Jesus did. And in reality, that's not all that hard. In the first place, the Lord God blessed the Christians in Smyrna that they will celebrate the feast for only ten days. In other words, there will come an end to it. Those ten days are symbolical. In the Revelation, the number ten conveys the meaning of fullness in the decimal system. It is a symbolic number to express the completeness of the period of suffering, which is neither long nor short, but full because the termination is sure. There comes an end to suffering. God is in control. Furthermore, you only have to wonderfully a small portion, a small portion each day. God gives you strength. Each day you have to remind yourself that you are competing in the victory of Christ against the powers of darkness. And to do that, God also blesses you day by day. Now listen now to the complication of this. God will use you for it. That's the impression you get from this text. That's also the complication that it means that he's loving you. That is why the Lord God says to them that they're so rich. Their riches cannot be compared to those who have already lost everything, those who belong to Satan. Their riches, the riches of the world, are earthly riches. They don't matter. The crown you now already have is a foretaste of the crown that these people are to have. This is a permanent crown. For that, Satan will have been banished from this world Satan will have been banished from our hearts, and then he can no longer tempt you, and then he will no longer be around either to torment you. And all those who belong to the synagogue of Satan will no longer be around. And the life hereafter, you will have a full victory in Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. Christ says, He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. The first death is the physical death. You know what the second death is? The second death is eternal death. The second death is for those who do not want to share in the victory of Christ. It is for those who give their hearts and their lives over to Satan. They will be forsaken by God forever and ever. That is the lot of those who are not redeemed. Fever does not happen to you in the first death. Unless Christ comes back during our lifetime, physically we will all die. But we must be here for the second death. For as long as you are faithful to your Lord and Savior, all of you do not have to be here. It is not to death that you are saved. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the 